more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody, to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world, yes, you know the next word, really works. Good to be together again, and thank you for being part of the show. Uh, Also, I thank you now, as always, for telling other people about the show. Many, many of you are doing this, and it's to you I address my appreciation. Um, it's, it's wonderful. I, I feel very gratified. Look, uh, at heart, I'm a teacher. That's what the word rabbi means. Just means teacher. Rebbe means my teacher. And uh, that's what I love doing. That's why I'm here. So when the size of the classroom grows, when the size of the uh, congregation grows, when the size of the auditorium grows, when the size of the audience grows, not only in number, which it is doing beautifully, thank you to your efforts, uh, but it's also a startlingly high-quality demographic. Uh, advertisers take note. Um, it's, it's wonderful. And there really is, uh, is, is no better example of the kind of listener that I am privileged enough to uh, have on this show um, than uh, Jay in Nigeria. Okay, now uh, I'm, I'm going to read you Jay's letter, and I'm also going to talk about it a bit, and I'm going to tell you that I've responded to him both in writing and I'm responding now on the show because... Um, his, uh, his letter reveals so much. Number one, uh, it's authentic. Um, he's thought about it, and this really expresses what he feels. Number two, astonishingly enough, um, he, in spite of the fact that he's expressing his feelings, he's able to do so um, with complete courtesy and openness uh, in ter- the communication feels genuine and good. So I felt uh, very drawn to respond. And uh, thirdly and fascinatingly, uh, unlike the overwhelming majority of people, although I think it's true for the majority of listeners to this show, and I have reasons for believing that, but um, amazingly enough, uh, he's open to new ideas. He's open to rethinking things. That is so important. Look, if we close our minds off to anything with which we instinctively disagree, we are truly condemning ourselves to perpetual darkness. So at any rate, here is a gentleman writing from Nigeria. I'm going to read his letter uh, word for word because I think you'll find it as interesting as I did. Hello, Rabbi. How are you and your wonderful family? I listened to your message of the 25th of May, 2019. As an avid listener and huge fan of yours, I cannot but notice your overwhelming bias against the Muslim folks. I am not a Muslim. I am a devoted Christian. And in my faith, I am not certain there is any place in the Bible where I was admonished to hold such views towards any man 
alone, talk alone our co-descendants from the Abrahamic, Abrahamic family tree. If we were to peer into this matter, you will agree with me that the West has done a lot to create this monster we have today in terrorism as it is related to Islam. This is still going on to this very minute. John Bolton canvassed for Iraq to be bombarded under totally false grounds. Today, he has engineered the U.S. government in the quest for the new world order to send ships to the Middle East in preparation for the very same circle events with Iran. Now, a lot of innocent Muslims are going to have their fathers and mothers murdered in the process, creating orphans who loathe the very existence of America and all it stands for. And we know how easy hate-filled hearts are manipulated into becoming pawns in this never-ending story. All Muslims are not terrorists, dear sir. I know, because as a Christian, I employ the services of at least six of them in my establishment. And I must tell you, they are some of the most skilled and devoted people I have come across in my life. A lot of people in the past have done and are still doing a lot of evil in the name of the church, as many as any jihadist ever did. How whites treated and are still treating Africans who they forced into their countries as slaves is worse terrorism than most of what we read on the news today. These were self-proclaimed Christians. I bet it would be unsavory to generalize all Christians under the banner of such men. As America goes around the world bullying people and destroying lives, these countries cannot fight back as a group. When single individuals revolt and inflict damage in their own little way on the West, based on the hate chain reaction America and her allies have set off, people want to see the symptoms and not the root cause. I do support or sympathize with terrorists, and I do not for any reason assume that every act of Isla Islamic terrorism falls under this category, but there is not smoke without fire, it seems. Secondly, Christmas. On a couple of occasions, I've heard you mention Christmas being associated with lights as a validation of the 25th of December being the birthday for Jesus. Again, as a Bible-believing Christian, I beg to differ on this. It hasn't been proven. On the contrary, what has been proven is the fact that the date has been reserved for pagan practice long before Jesus was born, as is Easter, which is clearly based on lunar sightings as against the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and so many other Christian holidays, which the Catholic Church in their benevolence subtly inserted into their calendar. Like I mentioned in the last email I wrote, you are someone I deeply respect because of your vast knowledge, and I can assure you I'm one of your biggest promoters in Nigeria. I've said all of these things with an open mind, and as such, I stand corrected if any of my assertions are incorrect. My regards to Mrs. Lappin and the entire body of great human beings who work to make your job of teaching and showing us how the world really works look easy. God bless you, sir. Jay from Nigeria. And... Um, Look, there's a lot of things in that letter that, uh, that called for comment and response. And I'm sure while I was reading his letter, you were saying to yourself, yeah, I wonder what he's going to say to that. Uh, and, um, and look, I, I get a fair amount of abusive email as well. You know, the world being what it is today and social media being what it is today and the polarization of the culture being what it is today, as we are approaching 
this fascinating period in history. Essentially, a titanic struggle uh, between materialism and truth. Uh, you know, the, the feelings do run high, but uh, I didn't see this letter as anything abusive at all. I saw it as a wonderful letter, exactly the kind of communication I enjoy. Somebody with uh, strong opinions and views, somebody who's thought about these things, somebody who asks passionately, and then finishes off, my goodness, what an amazing way to finish a letter. I have said all of these things with an open mind, and I stand corrected if my assertions are not right. Uh, fantastic. I mean, that is an invitation. It's an almost irresistible invitation uh, to continue the discussion. So I wrote back to him. I just felt it needed an immediate response, even though I wasn't able at that moment to respond um, in, in any depth. But I did write back and I said, Dear Jay, how good of you to write such a thoughtful letter. I'm delighted to hear from you again in Nigeria. By the way, I know it is a long, long way, but I will be speaking in Ghana in a few weeks. It is a real treat for me to receive your letters. I remember you from the last one. My plan is to respond to your letter at the start of next week's podcast, since I think many would agree with your views. For now, I'll just say that I have no bias against Muslims for committing almost all the violence being perpetrated around the world. It is no more a bias than I have for earthquakes for destroying buildings. It's what they do. I'm stating a fact, not exhibiting bias. Regarding your view on the Bible admonishing you, I have to tell you, my dear Jay, I could hardly agree with you any less. There are more instances than I can count in the Bible where we are told to recognize evil and reject it. To quote just one verse, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20. I don't call out Muslims for wearing their distinctive clothing, or for worshipping with bare feet, God bless them. Those are not problems. However, they are the people mostly behind cowardly bombings in Boston Marathon, at the London Transport in 9-11, and literally hundreds of others where innocent people get killed. That is evil. And religious folks like us are called upon to identify it and declare it evil. Of course not all Muslims are terrorists. I cannot for one moment believe you think you ever heard me claim otherwise. But that does not diminish the fact that most terrorists are Muslims. Finally, I cannot believe that I am understanding you correctly. Surely you are not suggesting <clears throat> that because A, person A did or might have done something to person B, therefore person B is justified in killing person C. If you believe that, we are justifying me killing anyone who annoys me because someone else scratched my car. Now, you can't possibly be saying that Muslim terror is justified because of something America might or might not have done. That is impossible, so I will assume I misunderstood you. More to come on the podcast. Regarding Christmas, 
I won't argue, since you certainly know more about Christianity than I do, but I don't believe that I have ever asserted that December 25th is the proven birth date of Jesus. Like you, my impression is that nobody really knows that. Thank you again for writing. It fills me with encouragement to know that I have listeners in Nigeria. I am conveying your very warm, appreciated uh, wishes to my family and to our team at Rabbi Daniel Lappin Ministries. Take care of yourself and yours. God bless, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. And uh, I don't think it was more than a few minutes before um, he sent back another email. And again, I'm going to read that to you. I, look, I just think this is a... I think it's a nice example of two people who probably disagree on quite a bunch of things, nonetheless uh, discussing them in what could hardly be a more, not only respectful fashion, but even cordial and friendly. Uh, hello, Rabbi. Thank you for taking the time to write back. It is very much appreciated, sir. I just looked up your schedule, and it says you'll be in Ghana soon. I and my wife are heading to England just about that time, and I'm saddened by the fact that I didn't have enough time to plan for this. Nonetheless, I'll be on the lookout for an opening, even if for one day, to come hear you speak. I will jump on the plane to Ghana without any hesitation. Also, when I'm next in America, I'll do well to look up your speaking schedule for the time and plan my trip around it. I read what you said about Muslims. I hear you, sir, and to be honest, what terrorists do is evil. I could never qualify that otherwise, and I strongly stand against such actions and individuals. The word terrorist, there are quite a lot of people who fit that description. Matthew and Tyler Williams, Sean Lester, Kyle Aaron, Huff Wade, Michael Page, and a bunch of people. Uh, these aren't Muslims or Arabs. Just for the fun of it, we might throw in Hitler and even W. Bush, considering almost half a million deaths were directly connected to his decision to invade Iraq for entirely false reasons. This looks like terrorism to me. Those innocent people never did anything to him. He attacked them. Notice one thing a lot not all of these men have in common. Same thing the Muslim terrorists are, fighting an unjust Western government. Allow me to submit to you that this phenomenon is indeed a human malfunction, which is spiritual at the very core, not an Islamic one. My personal qualms with Islamic terrorists is the fact that they carry the name of the Lord in vain, albeit I'm not sure if it's the same Lord we're talking about after all. I look forward to your response in the next podcast. So in your own words, I do not wish <laughs> in your own words, I do not wish to massage you with warm butter, as you probably hear this all the time. You are one of the most insightful and wise humans I've been blessed to listen to. I'm even more thankful that you've chosen not to keep your wisdom within the people that are in your immediate circle, as people like us would never have been able to pay for it. Thank you, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Thank you. Never for a second think that we are not listening or being blessed, even if we don't write every week. Your work is irreplaceable in a time like this. Please keep at it for as long as God permits. God bless you. And it's signed, Jay, again, from Nigeria. Okay, nice, nice um, uh, communication, right, for sure. Um, look, uh, there, there's, a lot, there's a lot to discuss there, but um, uh, it is worth noting that what Jay seems to be coming back to repeatedly is the idea that Western government, particularly the United States, has done things that are um, morally wrong, uh, in his view, invading Iraq, etc., etc. Uh, and therefore, you can't blame Muslims who have no other way to react other than this. 
Look, um, I, I do think there's something distinctive about Islam, unlike Jay. I think there is something distinctive. And uh, in that particular context, I would say, take a look at the way Japan reacted after World War II. If anybody had a right to hate America, it would be the Japanese. I mean, gosh, the atom bomb, the devastating and uh, until then never known force of atomic power unleashed on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, uh, if, if that would have created an entire generation of Japanese youth bent on avenging, you know, you kind of could have said, well, <laughs> maybe, you know, but they didn't because we understand war is war. Germans, at the end of World War II, Right, what was done to the Germans? Um, look, there's no apologies. <laughs> what no Nazism inflicted on the world is uh, horrific. But what the invading Russian army did to Germany, equally horrific. The and again, because it is so politically incorrect to express any sympathy for Germans. And by the way, even Germans themselves feel this. The, uh, I, I do believe that a large part of the reason that uh, Mrs. Merkel invited in over a million elite, well, I would say she invited them in, immigrants from Middle East and North Africa, and the reason that to a large extent the German people were docile about it was this deep feeling that they deserve whatever happens to them. Right? Human beings are like that, by the way. Have you ever found, have you ever come across accident-prone children? Very often, that's because they are not being disciplined by their parents. And that deep down, on a spiritual level, those children feel unworthy. They feel unpunished. They feel that they know that they have gone against the values with which they were raised. They know they have disobeyed their parents. But... There was, no, there was no consequence. And so they have accidents. Things happen to them. Painful things happen. And on some subconscious level, they're bringing it upon themselves. Because we human beings have a deep, irresistible urge towards virtue and moral justice. We do. It's as powerful as our urge for food and water. It's as powerful as our urge for sex. And uh, the German people following World War II, knowing the horrors they brought on the world, right? I mean, do you know how many tens of thousands of Allied soldiers lost their lives? on June the 6th, 1944, on the beaches of Normandy, right, 75 years ago, exactly from the time I'm recording these words, right? I mean, and that's just a drop in the ocean other than for the families of those boys. And you know how old these people were? Incredible, you know, civilization saved by 22-year-old boys, right? 22-year-olds parachuting down 
onto the fields of Normandy on June the 6th. Incredible when you think about it, mind-boggling. All of this necessary because of what Germany inflicted on the world. The horrors of the death camps. Millions of Jews murdered. Millions of other lives extinguished. Racial purity being the goal. Germans understandably feel horrible about this. But what they don't really understand is that the important thing about us human beings is not our biology, but it's our beliefs. Beliefs trump biology every time. And that is why the current preoccupation of progressives with skin color is obscene. There is no other word for it. It is just obscene. It is essentially stripping away the spiritual reality of human beings and replacing it with materialistic, animalistic, biological determinism. Oh, your skin's white, that's all, that, now we know this about you. Your skin's black, well, now we know this about you. Uh, your uh, gen genitalia look like this, therefore we know everything about you. Your genitalia look different, well, now we know all this about you. It's appalling. In the titanic struggle between materialism and truth, this is one of the critical points. And so Germans, believing that just their Germanic identity ties them to the Holocaust and to the horrors of uh, the mid-20th century, they feel guilty and they feel the need to bring punishment upon themselves. They feel the need for atonement and expiation, which, by the way, even subconsciously, you may not even be aware of it, but you and I also have a deep need for expiation and for atonement for our own perceived moral uh, failures. When subconsciously our own souls become filled with a self-loathing about ourselves, the results are never pretty, never. And so uh, Mrs. Merkel then, sure, uh, feels that, that Germany is... Uh, is uh, worthy of being punished, and it needs to atone for the World War II. And World War II said, we Germans are distinctive, we are Aryans, and we have to kill people, all that sort of stuff. Uh, so how do you expiate for that? Well, you say, we're all the same. And uh, given that at the moment, it's, it was not hard to see, and this is true 10 years ago, not hard to see that Germany's ambitious social welfare programs, Germany's ambitious programs of socialistic redistribution uh, could not be sustained indefinitely because, as I've discussed in previous podcasts over the last couple of months, I've explained the inescapable need for a triangular population structure, for a viable, durable healthy, effective society. But Germany has a shrinking population. And since there is a diminishing number of young people coming up whose work will sustain and support and underwrite 
the generous transfer policies for the older generation, she said, well, what we really need are more Germans. And there's no difference between young males from Algeria and from Palestine and from Syria as, uh, and, and young Germans from Munich and from Dusseldorf and from Berlin. Why don't we just bring in a million young males from there? They want to come and we'll have solved our problem and at the same time expiated our sins of World War II and shown the world that, yes, indeed, we are good people. Germany really did suffer, Germans, at the end of World War II. They really did. Uh, the Germans themselves feel awkward talking about these things. But um, it, it's worth noting that the rape inflicted on the German people by the invading Russian army, and by the way, I'm not, I'm not saying that the Allies coming from the West never ever raped a single German woman, but it wasn't much, it wasn't endemic, it didn't happen a whole lot. When it did happen, the uh, soldier involved was usually uh, caught and punished by his own uh, commanders. The Russians, on the other hand, coming from the East, were actually encouraged. Uh, there's even, there, there is horrible material in exposed uh, Russian files talking about uh, how our need is to plant a million Russian babies in Germany. Well, I don't know uh, exactly what, what transpired, but the, some of the horror stories, and there are a few instances of records being made uh, by women while they were still alive of what they went through at the hands of the invading Russians. Look, um, the, Germans, uh, the Germans reaped the harvest of the whirlwind they sowed. Uh, you say ordinary Germans didn't. Well, you know, it's the same as saying innocent Iraqis, as Jay said, innocent Iraqis killed by George W. Bush inv Bush's invasion. Um, look, there is no such thing. When you are part of a nation and your nation goes to war, yeah, sure, you may not have wanted that to happen, but the way the world really works, and you may as well know this, instead of waving a defiant fist at reality and screaming, no, 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 it really makes life a lot better if you understand what is inevitable, what is real. What is real is you suffer or enjoy the pains or the pleasures of what the group of which you are a part deserves. What I mean to say is you might be the neatest, cleanest person imaginable. For one reason or another, you are living in a neighborhood populated by cleanliness louts. You're, you're living among people who are absolutely, um, who, who care nothing for these matters. So they throw things on the ground, they litter, they let filth pile up in their yards, and you put meticulously every piece of candy wrapper in a waste basket, and you keep everything clean, you are still going to have a rather unpleasant life living in a squalid slum. It's inescapable. 
You don't deserve it. You're good. But you experience the fate of those of the group in which you are a part. Uh, conversely, uh, you might be a, a lazy, good-for-nothing, indolent person. But if you live among a lot of people who are hard-working and diligent and compassionate, you will find they will take care of you. And without even realizing, they are enabling your self-destructive lifestyle. And people will come to you and say, you don't deserve to have a free apartment and free food and free medical care and free education for your children. You don't deserve it. Look at you. You don't lift a finger from morning to night. And the answer is, you can waggle your nose at him and say, tough luck. I'm a beneficiary of how the world really works Rule number 117, and that is what befalls the group of people with whom you associate will pretty much befall you as well. That's kind of how it really works. If, uh, if you are a terrific kid, somehow or another, you are a child with a moral vision, a young person, let's say you're a teenager and you you raised, you grew, you're part of an absolutely awful family. Uh, a dad who's hardly ever there, and when he is, it's more painful than when he isn't. And a mom who's not, you get the picture. You're this fantastic kid. And you're, you're in a horrible family. And you're torn. I mean, you're on the one hand, you want to feel loyalty to your family. On the other, you realize that they're not only destroying their own lives and those of your siblings, but they're making it almost impossible for you to make, make a success of your life. And uh, the answer is you are being punished by the people among whom you live. It's inescapable. It's not inevitable. You can rise above that, and, and many, many, many have. But, it, but it's harder. There's no question about it. You have a harder path to walk. No question about it. Um, I have to tell you, I, um, uh, was, I, I, I was asked to officiate at a wedding uh, by a, a lovely couple recently. And uh, for, for reasons that have nothing to do with the story, I chose to accept that uh, invitation to, to officiate at their, at their wedding. Lovely, lovely couple. And um, at the wedding, at the party afterwards, uh, at, at some point during the, uh, the, 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 the ceremony, I spoke about different kinds of communication. And I spoke about uh, authentic female communication. And, uh, and what I said was that for the most part, guys do not have it. We don't grow up uh, automatically learning how to communicate. Uh, we prefer doing to talking. That just tends to be a masculine thing. And uh, to varying degrees, we guys all have that. Women, completely different. Um, if a man calls me up and I answer the phone and he says... Uh, Hi, how are you doing? And I say, fine, thank you. How are you doing? He says, fine, thanks. I am now quiet. I am waiting for him to tell me why he called. The next sentence should be, you know why I called you? Yeah, tell me. Or it might be, can I ask you for a favor? Sure, what's on your mind? 
or uh, it might be, you may not be aware of this, but I thought you should know. Yeah, please tell me. But that's what the next sentence has to be. Again, to a greater or lesser extent, depending on the sort of innate femininity, when a woman phones another woman, the conversation doesn't have to go like that at all. As a matter of fact, at the end of 20 minutes, somebody might say to that woman, hey, who are you talking to? She says, I was talking to Katie. Oh, what did she call for? Just to say hello. 20 minutes? Yes, it's called communication. It's valuable. And the, one of the most important reasons for a man to have a wife in his life is to make sure that those connections are made. He forms this unbreakable unit with his wife. It's the two of them. Therefore, when she connects to Katie, then Katie and her husband are now connected to you and your wife. Women do that job. It's the hard, necessary work of building the uh, neurological-like network of connections between units in a society. And God, in his wisdom, made women not only good at it, but to enjoy that. So I'm, I'm explaining all this at the wedding. And I'm saying, look, um, so much so is this that what, um, and I'm addressing myself to the bride, and I say to her, what you probably don't know is that the most terrifying words to any man are, honey, we have to sit down and talk. No, please, anything but that. Give me something to fix. Give me something to do. Give me a dragon to slay. Give me an enemy to vanquish. Please give me any job. No, just don't make me sit down and talk. That's right. And, um, and I said, uh, one of the things that happens within a marriage is that a wife gradually helps a husband during the first couple of turbulent years of marriage. And if, and if your first year of marriage is totally smooth, well, in most likely, in all probability, you're just covering up stuff and sweeping it under the rug. <laughs> uh, because there are things that have to happen. One of the things that has to happen is that, indeed, uh, men have to learn a little bit of this authentic form of feminine communication. Because at some point or another, a wife wants to hear regularly from her husband, how do you feel? What is on your mind? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Okay. Now, if, if I am having a business relationship with a guy and we're, we're putting together a deal, I don't really want to know what he's feeling. You know, unless it crops up on an, you know, what is your instinctive reaction? Do you think this person is trustworthy? That's different. But if I say, like, tell me, you know, are you feeling happy? Are you feeling sad today? It's irrelevant. <laughs> Can we just get on with the job? Anyways, I say all this, and uh, I'm mixing with this charming crowd of guests that they've invited. And it's one of the lovely things about a marriage is uh, the, the atmosphere is just conducive to meeting new people and making new friends. And so um, uh, I'm, I'm strolling around, uh, a few people standing there. A girl says to me, by the way, I want you to know, my boyfriend knows uh, instinctively authentic feminine communication. I, oh, come on, I don't believe you. She says, it's true. I can talk to him like I talk to my girlfriends. It's absolutely incredible. He's a treasure. And I say, really? She says, she says, yeah, you should meet him. I said, I'd love to. She called Trevor, Trevor. 
Trevor comes over and um, Trevor is a black guy, very talented musician. I had actually, I'd heard him in, in, in another context as well. And um, charming guy, we chat for a little bit. And I said, um, so-and-so tells me you have authentic female communication. And he sort of shrugs his shoulders modestly and he says, I guess so. He said, I, mean, I, I, I think I do uh, communicate with her differently from the way most guys can. I said, that's truly remarkable. You're not even married. I mean, most times people have to learn that from a wife. May I ask you, how is it possible that you actually have this ability? And he looked down and he looked very sad for a few moments. And I dreaded what was coming next. And then he looked into my eyes again and he said, it's very simple. He said, I have never had a father in my life. I was raised entirely by women. It was a mom, it was a grandma, it was older sisters, it was other relatives. I was raised by women. That's the only way I know how to communicate. Wow. And um, as you can imagine, uh, there were other things I, I wanted to discuss with him, and, and uh, I, I wish we had even more time. It was, it was quite... Uh, to be able to talk to somebody who had accomplished much in his life with such a disadvantaged beginning and who was so incredibly self-aware was really rather remarkable. And so uh, that, that uh, just served as a good example to me of uh, what a human being can do when he is a good human being surrounded by, if you like, not such good people. Uh, the converse is also true. What about a, a bad, I shouldn't say bad, uh, I was going to say a bad child, but as my ears heard what I was saying just the second before I said it, um, that, uh, that important fail-safe manure detector uh, kicked in, and I, I thought, wait a sec, no, a bad child isn't, isn't good. But a, a, a child who finds himself at odds with his family Right, and, and this is very common. There are many people like that. Uh, they're, they're terrific with outsiders. They're great with friends. They're great with other relatives. They're terrific. They really are extraordinary human beings. But at home, they hurt their siblings. They annoy their parents. Their parents annoy them. I mean, they feel frustration at almost anything their parents say. Fact remains that that child who is being uncooperative at home, is bringing sadness to his parents, bringing pain to his siblings, but that child is still going to have the benefit of being among a group of good, productive people. Fact remains that regardless of his, regardless of the pain he inflicts on his family members, he still has a dad who loves him. He has a dad who goes to work every day. He's got food on the table. He's got a mom who cares passionately about him and deeply about him. He's got siblings who would walk through fire for him. So in spite of the fact of doing nothing but hurting his family, he still has all the benefits. Again, Rabbi Daniel Lappin's rule from ancient Jewish wisdom, principle number 117, you are the beneficiary of everything that happens to the group 
among whom you live, the people with whom you associate. If they are bad people and bad things happen, then no matter how good you are, then good things are going to be part of your life. If you are destructive, but you live among wonderful people, you'll still have the benefit that comes to wonderful people. And so that's just a reality. And um, it is um, <clears throat> part of how the world really works. Um, the, the point that I was making is that Germans did have horrible things done to them after World War II. Horrible things. It's politically incorrect to speak about them because the Germans deserve whatever happened to them. And um, as I say, part of the problem is a failure to distinguish between biology and belief. Uh, it was a Nazi belief, and it is a belief that has its roots long before Nazism. It has its roots in a biblical character in Genesis by the name of Amalek, A-M-A-L-E-K, if I had to transliterate it into English. In Hebrew, Ayin Mem Lamed Kuf. And this individual <clears throat> has a particular set of beliefs that was adopted in its entirety by the Nazis. Today, those uh, beliefs, that entire same set of beliefs, have pretty much been adopted by Islamic Jihad. The connections, the spiritual connections, going back biblically, that link 20th century Nazism with 21st century Islamic Jihadist fanaticism, those links are incredibly deep and amazingly powerful. And by the way, I cover them in an audio program on my website. Right? The website is, go on, you say it, rabbidaniellappin.com. Oh, wait, you didn't say that. I know what you said. You said www.youneedarabbi.com. Yeah, that's it as well. But uh, if you go to the website, you would see a, uh, a two-hour audio teaching um, called the um, uh, is, uh, Clash, pardon me, Clash of Destiny, Decoding the Secrets of Israel and Islam. And that's where I explain that in greater depth. But um, uh, to, to say that the Germans of today, who are the children, or in many cases, grandchildren or great-grandchildren of the men who, and women who perpetrated the uh, hideous atrocities of World War II, to say that these people carry the burden of this and still are tainted by the grievous moral failings of that period is complete nonsense. That is to convert biology into something more important than beliefs. And um, nonetheless, however, uh, if after World War II, young Germans turned into vengeance-bound terrorists traveling into England and America and Russia to inflict revenge on... You'd kind of understand it. Yes, I know you could say Japan started with, with Pearl Harbor, but I assure you, that in exactly the same way that Jay speaks of what 
George W. Bush did to start off the terror, what this Western government did to start off and launch and trigger Islamic terror, I assure you, many, many, many people said that in the uh, period of 1938, 39, 40, and December the 7th, 41. In other words, what was very common, and by the way, you can even find uh, easily research on, this, on the web that shows people saying, hey, America asked for Pearl Harbor. By the way, there were even Americans who said that. They asked for Pearl Harbor. You know why? Because we shut off Japan's access to oil from the South China Sea, from Indonesia. We shut off their supply of oil. What do you expect to the, them to do? Uh, Japan is a little group of islands. They have no natural resources. Um, it's a little bit like Switzerland in that respect, or like Hong Kong in that respect. Everything they've built has been built out of adopting a belief system that is essentially American. But um, prior to that, if they don't bring in stuff, they don't have stuff. We cut off their supply of oil. No wonder they launched Pearl Harbor. I assure you there were people who said that. Um, there were many people, even in England, who sided with Hitler against Churchill. Churchill is a warmonger. Uh, if Hitler only wants uh, to, to get a little bit more space, let him have Czechoslovakia, let him have Poland, let him have whatever he wants. It doesn't have to be a war, but uh, Churchill is provoking Hitler to a war. Right? Many people believe that. Now, again, history is written by the victor, and so... Uh, one has to sort of go back and explore this. My point is that those who make excuses for Muslims who launch attacks of violence against innocent people by saying, well, look what the West did to them, you've got nothing to talk about. Because whatever you want to claim the West has done to Arab countries or Muslim countries fades into insignificance when compared to what the West did to Japan and what the Allies did to Germany. But at the end of the hostilities, peace resumed, civilization triumphed. And that's been true with every group except Muslims. So uh, the, notion, the notion that you can justify violence against somebody because of something that someone else did to you is completely unacceptable. And uh, it really chews away at the very foundation of the building of civilized interaction between nation states. Um, now, I am fortunate enough uh, to have a wonderful 15-year-old uh, young man who works as an intern for me. He's actually related to me as well. But um, I, I will say that his uh, position in my organization is only 5% due to his relationship, his family relationship, and 95% due to his diligence and willingness to help and his, his ability to just do whatever I ask him to take care of. And, uh, and so I thought this would be interesting. 
I gave him the letter I got from Jay, and I said to him, would you please make some notes on this as to how you would answer Jay if you were me? And I thought, well, this will, first of all, be helpful for me, and secondly, uh, it would also be helpful for him. And so he did that, and uh, here are some of the things he wrote. At the beginning of the piece, um, where Jay says, I can't but notice, I can't help but notice your overwhelming bias against the Muslim folks. Right? That's in Jay's original letter, accusing me of bias against Muslims. <clears throat> um, my intern uh, wrote a note and said to me, uh, explain that everything you say on your podcasts uh, are about facts. And it's not just saying that all Muslims are terrorists. Um, you are stating facts about the Muslims, and that does not reflect a bias against the Muslim folks. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's, that's exactly right. Uh, a bias, I guess, would be assuming that, um, you know, people with red hair uh, tend to commit most traffic violations. And I have no proof of that. It's just a bias. I don't like people with red hair. And, and I say, you know what? Trouble with red-haired people is that they're doing all the traffic violations. Every time somebody cuts in front of you, every time, you just want, it's always going to be somebody with red hair. You know, that's just a bias. But, um, <clears throat> but to say that um, the overwhelming majority of acts of violence against innocent people being conducted around the world under the name of terrorism, are committed by people who worship Allah. Uh, I don't, as my intern said, that's not bias, that's stating a fact. Now, if you disagree with a fact, well then, uh, you know, then we don't have a discussion about beliefs, we have a discussion about facts, and this can be resolved very quickly. Either I'm right or I'm wrong about that observation. Um, so, uh, then on the, the part of Jay's letter, where he says, I'm sure you'll agree with me that the West has done a lot to create this monster we have today in terrorism. <clears throat> so my, my first observation with that, I've just told you, which is that uh, there is nothing that justifies violence of Tom against Carol because of something that Jerry did. All right? It's totally unacceptable. Um, it's, it, it undercuts the foundation of civilized interaction. And so... My intern wrote, mostly Muslims brought this on themselves. Muslims in Muslim countries believe strongly in Sharia law. And now he quotes some facts. He says, in Pakistan, 76% of Pakistanis want Sharia imposed in every Islamic country. The same opinion is shared by 81% of Egyptians, 76% of Moroccans, 50% of Indonesians, and all this is reported in a Pew Research study done in 2009. <clears throat> uh, Sharia, says my intern, of course is not compatible with Western culture. Uh, the majority of these Muslim countries believe amputation should be the punishment for theft. The point that the West is to blame for terrorism is based on a double standard. Uh, he's saying that the Muslims are just responding to factors put in place by America. However, 
many countries in Africa where even more poverty exists and where the U.S. government also intervenes, there is considerably less terrorism happening. The West cannot be held responsible for writing the Koran and making Muslims follow it. Okay. You know, this is, this is fairly decent stuff from a 15-year-old, I think, even if he wasn't related to me. Um, on the, uh, I asked him to continue on. Um, he writes, he, he says to me, uh, Jay from Nigeria, Muslims are not terrorists. All Muslims are not terrorists. I know because I employ six of them, and they're some of the most skilled and devoted people I've come across. <clears throat> and, and again, I, I responded in my letter to him saying, look, you never, ever heard me say all Muslims are terrorists. I'm not even going to say most Muslims are terrorists. I'm just saying all terrorists are Muslims. Uh, so now my intern wrote, one out of every 100 Muslims are jihadists and are waiting for a chance to blow themselves up in a Jewish daycare center. 59% of Muslims that are Islamists support these people and think they are doing the right thing. The other 40% or the moderates probably do not drink alcohol or pray five times a day. And then he writes, just like reformed Jews do not represent religious Jews, Islam does not, is, is not represented by the moderates because they do not follow the Hadith and the Quran the way it specifically says to do so. He said, then he writes in a bullet point to me, another point that maybe you should make in your podcast is about Islamic deception. The Quran gives specific instructions on how to and when to lie to non-Muslims. This was used by Muhammad when he was conquering other nations. He would tell them that if they just surrendered and didn't fight, he would let them live and take care of them. As soon as the city opened its gates up and the citizens felt comfortable and safe, he would have his army kill all the men. Um, then on the paragraph where Jay writes, uh, a lot of people have done and are still doing evil in the name of the church as much as any jihadist ever did. And my intern writes, you cannot compare Christianity and Islam. The Bible consists of 66 different books, 39 from the Old Testament, 27 from the New Testament. These books were written through a lengthy period. And then he goes on to explain, and he writes to me about the... Uh, the period of the Enlightenment Christianity went through, and the, the fact is that, um, that there is actually very little, if any, violence being perpetrated in the name of Jesus, whereas there's a great deal of violence being perpetrated in the name of Allah. Um, he's then on Jay's paragraph, how whites treated and are still treating Africans who they forced into their countries as slaves is worse terrorism than most of what we read on the news today. My intern writes, this, of course, is not true. Today, there are little or no racists, and the majority of U.S. citizens don't agree with any white supremacists. Furthermore, Muslims have taken many times more people as slaves than the West ever has. It also... Um, uh, and he, then he does a comparison between how uh, Muslims have treated blacks in the past and how female um, Muslims are being treated. All, all good points, but th nothing that you, as my listeners, do not already know. Um, uh, uh, Jay writes, I do not for any reason assume that every act of Islamic terrorism falls under this category, but uh, there is no smoke without fire. 
And then my intern writes, it is true that President Obama did not help the situation in Muslim countries, but the West is not to blame for anything that Muslims do because their religion tells them to do it. So those are, those are the points my intern made, which I thought uh, for a 15-year-old were good and, and valid. At least I, I found them helpful as well. Um, on Christmas, uh, Jay wrote on a couple of occasions, I've heard you mention Christmas being associated with lights as a validation of 25th of December being the birthday for Jesus. I never actually have ever said, and I, I have checked, I've never said anything like that at all. I have commented on the fact that um, uh, both the Hebrew festival of Hanukkah and Christmas occur on the 25th day of their respective months. This is just a fact. Hanukkah starts on the 25th of the Hebrew month of Kislev. Christmas falls on the 25th of December. Um, Hanukkah, people light lights. It is called the Festival of Lights. And I actually have an audio program on my website uh, devoted to the Festival of Lights. And you can read about that at, you got it, youneedarabbi.com. That's right. And... Um, uh, I also have, I've spoken about how much I enjoy uh, the way people shop for gifts around about Christmas time. It, it brings out um, the best in people. It produces altruism and feeling for other people. I, I think it's quite wonderful. I really do. Uh, I love it. So um, there is pretty much the, my response to that particular letter I got. It was an extensive response, but we also covered a few other things as well <laughs> while we were at it, I think, right? Um, look, uh, I'm, I'm going to talk for a moment about airplanes, but here is why those of you, mostly you women, should not turn me off now. Do not turn me off, please. Do not extinguish me. Here's why you shouldn't do it, because it's not, I'm not just talking about technology, I'm not just talking about airplanes, and I'm not talking about Boeing and the 737 MAX, other than to say, remember, you heard it on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show first, that the 737 MAX would not be airborne again in just a few weeks. Remember where you heard that. But um, no, uh, the reason I impeach you not to turn me off, the reason I implore you not to turn me off, the reason I beseech you not to turn me off is because uh, what I'm really talking about is the belief system of progressives. The belief system of progressives is that, um, <laughs> is that the most important act of virtue is saving the environment. Now, I've spoken in the past about how desperately important it is for all human beings to believe themselves to be virtuous, to be driven by a cause. Uh, this also, for those people who don't understand Islamic jihadist extremism, you've got to understand that for a young man who has no economic prospects, who is not driven by the motivation of economic self-betterment, for him to be driven by nothing and to, to really begin to have to confront himself as nothing but a materialistic creature intent only on its own survival and propagation, like an animal, that is unbearable. And to have 
a belief system, even if it is one that might well cost you your life, but may demand that you sacrifice your life for the greater good, that is preferable. And that is exactly what drove 22-year-old boys onto the beaches of Normandy 75 years ago. It's exactly what drove 22-year-old boys into the air in their flimsy fighter planes in the summer of 1940 as they went into the Battle of Britain to determine the future of civilization. The whole question of whether Germany would successfully invade the British Isles, hang the king and hang Winston Churchill, and extinguish the lights of Western civilization, all of that rested on a group of young men who took to the air in what today we would think of as flimsy primitive flying machines, their hurricanes and their spitfires, and uh, fought off the Luftwaffe in the uh, sunny days of that summer early in 1940. Yes, we, we all need beliefs, and progressives are no different in this respect. And their, one of their driving beliefs is the need to um, uh, protect the environment, save the world from climate change. Um, so much so, I recently um, was a speaker for a Shavuot retreat. Uh, one of the least known Jewish holidays is the holiday of Pentecost, coming 50 days after the Seder of Passover. It's called Shavuot in Hebrew, the Feast of Weeks, uh, the Harvest Festival in the Bible. And uh, it is, of course, the also, I shouldn't say of course, because the vast majority of American Jews do not know this, and certainly there's no reason why non-Jews should know it, but it is the anniversary on which God appeared to mankind at, with Moses on Mount Sinai. Uh, it is the anniversary for that. And so it is, uh, for many observant, Torah-observant Jews, it is a holiday very much dedicated to the study of Torah. And uh, I like speaking for uh, religious retreats at that time. So I check into a very lovely hotel um, in California, as it happens, uh, in preparation for a three-day weekend, uh, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, uh, the holiday of Shavuot is Sunday and Monday, but it starts, Shavuot starts exactly at the moment Sabbath ends. So there is no time that I can drive to the hotel in between the end of the Sabbath and the start of the holiday. Hence, I have to be here from Friday all the way through, and that's how it works. So uh, I check into this hotel, and at the, res at, the, at the desk, after checking in and giving my card and identity, all that sort of stuff, and by the way, when did it start that in America you have to show your ID when checking into a hotel? When did that begin? Uh, just the last few years, I think. Uh, yeah, anyway, the reason I don't like it is because in Europe you have to do that. and they, uh, The police actually have access to the records of who's checked into which hotels. Anyway, as soon as I'm checked in, the reservation clerk says to me, and uh, would you like to join all the good people, exactly those words, my friends, would you like to join all the good people who have signed onto our green pledge? I said, really, what's that? She said, well, you don't, you renounce, she didn't use the word renounce, you don't get housekeeping 
we don't make up your room at all and um, and that allows us to keep the planet greener because we're not using additional resources um, I'm sorry folks but um, at $400 a night <laughs> uh, all I can say is how quickly the hospitality industry has leapt onto this bonanza and so I'm I know you're going to be disappointed in your rabbi you're going to shrug your shoulders and you're going to say I expected better of him I really did and so I'm sorry I'm sorry to disappoint you but I'm only human I have never ever claimed to be more virtuous than you all I claim is to be more virtuous than I would have been had I not been religious had I not feared the Lord I would be a really really much more terrible person than I am and so it is with sadness in my voice and trepidation in my heart that I confess to you that what I said to the check-in clerk is no I won't be joining the good folks taking your green pledge what is more I'd appreciate it if you'd make a note that we would like all the towels and linens changed on a daily basis and she said oh uh, you know we do change them every three days automatically I said that's right that's why I'm specifically asking you to tell housekeeping we want them changed every single day I know you're disappointed in me and I'm sorry but every now and then I fall I fail there it is I did that and so I'm talking a little bit about airplanes now just a few minutes uh, and the reason as I say is not because I'm talking about Boeing Mac no we're done with that for the moment it's enough for me to say uh, you may call me Ayatollah you so I did tell you so and uh, no I'm not going there and all I'm going is the uh, blind belief exhibited by progressives that's really what I'm talking about the framework is commercial aviation what am I how am I explaining this look um, belief makes you blind to facts and so it should that's what belief means we're not all fact driven right uh, those of us and it's not me by the way but I know people like this people will drive miles out of their way because they've got a little feature on their phone that tells them the gas station that's got the cheapest gas and so for six cents a gallon less they're driving huge mileage wasting a lot of their time to go to the that's not being fact driven that's belief driven it's one of the reasons that economics is not a science because it depends on the behavior of human beings and it presumes much of much of economics presumes on human beings behaving what's called rationally in other words being totally fact-driven that's not who we are sorry to spoil it for you and destroy an illusion no I'm never sorry for destroying illusions because I teach how the world really works and that means destroying illusions and so uh, one of the illusions of the left is that electrical transportation solves the problem it's the great good it is the final eternal salvation because electric cars don't put out emissions and so they're not going to hurt the 
uh, environment and it's not going to put carbon up there and increase global temperatures and cause hurricanes in Florida and tornadoes in Oklahoma, which, as we all know, are caused by global warming. Oh, yes, by the way, drought in California, it's a problem of climate change, has nothing to do with appalling water management by politicians. No, or yielding and surrendering to environmental forces in the culture. No, look, it's all a belief system. So one of the uh, disturbing questions you might ask uh, a progressive environmentalist is so tell me something um these uh, electric cars you so much enjoy uh those batteries have to be charged how do you charge them up oh well i got a charger at home i plug them in overnight and my car's ready to go the next day i said right and that electricity where does it come from pause long pause comes from the utilities and are the utilities uh able to generate power using nuclear power, which would be truly free of emission, longer pause, I guess not. Do you know why not? Because you and your friends fought against nuclear power. You designated it an ultimate evil. So it's not being generated by nuclear power. It's being generated by the burning of carbon fuels. If you like uh, oil, if you don't like coal, a very large pro pro proportion of American power is generated by coal, the rest of it by oil. If you say to me now, well, what about wind power, then you are truly out of touch with reality because the amount of electricity produced by wind power in the United States is negligible, it's insignificant. Uh, so, it's just not in your backyard. It's just that outside your house, you don't have a car burning gasoline. You've transferred it far away to the utility. And their power station generates electricity based entirely on burning uh, fuels like, carb like oil and coal. So this idea that electric cars, oh, they're so, come and stop it already. You know, if you want to just make your belief, I don't mock other people's beliefs. I mock people who stupidly cling to untrue facts. But uh, very often beliefs distort facts very much. And this is one of them. Uh, they believe that uh, electric cars, oh, they're wonderful for the environment. You show what a virtuous person you are by driving a Prius. Um, so obviously the next step is uh, recently... In the New York Times, no less, as well as in some British papers, I've seen several articles that's on the eve of the summer. All right, I'm, I'm recording this in June. And uh, there are a lot of articles out there speaking about people saying, I know I ought to forego my summer vacation because I have been shown statistics that reveal that every aircraft passenger mile that I fly destroys x square feet you know 97 square feet of arctic ice meaning there's less place for those dreadfully sad pictures of polar bears on one lonely ice floe which is rapidly melting in the lukewarm water of the arctic and so people are saying we ought not to do our summer vacation we ought to if we really believe what we say 
We ought to not fly to a summer vacation or drive. That's just as bad uh, because we are encouraging the melting of the, uh, the ice caps. And that's going to produce devastation, not only for the natural life of the Arctic, but also for all the residents of Miami Beach and New York who are going to be drowned by the rising level of seawater. Uh, okay. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, people are saying that we, we shouldn't be flying. So not surprisingly, the next thing we began hearing about is electric airplanes, right? No matter that their batteries would also have to be charged up. And at the moment, we have no alternative to charging them with electricity generated by burning oil and coal because you are the same people who have ended technological research on nuclear power. Um, by the way, I understand the Japanese. I really do, because they suffered such devastation in Fukuyama and in the, uh, in the associated tsunami. I, I really get it that they just say, you know what, never again. Let but they too will come around because the facts belie the beliefs. In that case, it turns out that negligible damage was done by the nuclear power station in spite of the fact that it got destroyed. Negligible damage. The idea that the, uh, the, the Russian meltdown in Chernobyl is in any way reflective of the perils facing Western power stations created with Western modern technology uh, is a complete lie. But anyway, when beliefs are afoot, facts are largely irrelevant. And so you'll, I'm sure you've read a lot of stuff about electric airplanes. So what I thought we should do is just for a couple of moments, bear with me, and I, I'm going to be um, a little bit uh, unintentionally offensive here, but say you ladies just hang in there with me because I know uh, most of the women in my audiences, and I'm talking about live audiences, when I turn to a, an example from the world of technology, it's the ladies who smile at each other and roll their eyeballs, which I find charming and lovely. But, um, but here, hang with me for just a moment as we discuss this question of battery-driven airplanes. Now, if you've been a long-time listener of the show, then you have heard me discuss in the past why it is that nobody like the Wright brothers came up with an airplane before the early 1900s. After all, we were driving ships across the Atlantic with burning coal reliably and much more quickly than by sail. Well, we were doing that in the 1800s. And by 1850, we were driving railroads around the world on every continent using coal. And, um, and before that, we were burning wood, by the way. All of those gave energy. Why was there never a coal-driven airplane? Or for that matter, today, there are certain countries that have to import oil, but have huge reserves of coal, right? England is a case in point. Why did English aircraft development, and they made some beautiful, beautiful early aircraft, do you remember the Vickers Viscount, or was it the Vickers VC-10? Uh, I don't think I ever saw one before my time, but I've seen pictures of them. Uh, the Comet, I, don't, I never saw a comedy. The Comet had certain failings, but it was a beautiful aircraft. Why did the British not build coal-powered aircraft? It's a good question, right? After all, Britain had plenty coal, 
no oil. They had a, a burgeoning aircraft industry in the early 20th century. Why didn't they make aircraft that flew on coal? Look, the answer is very simple. And I ask you to just bear with me a second, because it's beautiful. I mean, it's really, the, the whole, it, it, the elegance of it really helps you gain a broader understanding into how the world really works. You see, it takes a certain amount of energy to lift an airplane into the air. No matter whether it's got fat wings or short wings, no matter whether it's going to go fast or slow, no matter whether it carries 20 passengers or 100 passengers, it takes a certain amount of energy. You, we can all agree on that. Now, what happens if we also acknowledge that the amount of energy it takes to lift a plane into the air is related to the weight of the plane? Would you agree with that? The heavier the airplane, the more energy it'll take to lift. You can agree with that, right? Because if I asked you to uh, pick up a pair of shoes and put them on the bed, you can do that, right? You, you bend down. How much does a pair of shoes weigh? A pound and a half if it's men's shoes, about three ounces if it's women's shoes. Uh, pick them up, put them on the bed. How about if I ask you to lift a 50-pound suitcase and put it on the bed? Well, it takes more energy, right? Because it weighs more. If I ask you to lift a 200-pound a drum of water and put it on the on, on a higher level, it takes even more energy. So obviously, uh, the amount of energy it takes increases if the weight of the airplane increases. Now, what happens if the fuel that supplies that energy weighs more than the energy it supplies, if you know what I mean? In other words, what I'm trying to say is coal delivers for every pound of coal which has to be lifted off the ground if you're going to power the plane with coal, the amount of energy given by that coal isn't enough to lift up that extra pound. In other words, coal does not supply enough energy for its weight. That's the whole reason. It works great on trains because weight is not that important. Weight just doesn't matter that much when you're rolling something down a track, but it matters when you're lifting it off the ground. And so to drive a plane with coal, the, it simply can't work. It's just one of those things. There's simply not – the amount of coal you'd have to put on the plane would weigh so much that the plane couldn't get off. And if you added more coal to get more energy, all you're doing is adding even more weight and making it even more impossible for it to get off the runway. doesn't work. How about oil? Oil comes along, and one of the great things about oil is that if you take a pound of oil – it contains hugely more energy than a pound of coal. So now, if we load up fuel on a plane, not with coal, but we load it up with oil, now it can get off the ground because the amount of uh, energy carried in every pound of coal, excuse me, of, of oil, is enough to work. So now when we talk about battery-driven airplanes, all we've got to ask ourselves is a simple calculation which is how do batteries compare to oil, right? A battery has a certain weight, and the amount of energy that a uh, battery can supply is related to its weight. The more power a battery can supply, the more it weighs. That's why the entire floor pan of, of an electric car, the bottom section of the electric car, is all battery, and it weighs a huge amount. I don't have the exact numbers, but it probably is more than 50% of the weight of, a, uh, of an electric car is its battery. Of, it has to be that way. 
Now, the question is, what happens if we put a battery on a plane? How does that compare with oil? Now, I'm not an aeronautical engineer. I don't spend my days designing airplanes. I don't have intuitive uh, awareness gathered from years of experience. I just know how the world really works. And that's what I want to share with you. And so, how hard is it to find out the comparison between um, the power-to-weight ratio of a battery to the power-to-weight ratio of oil. In other words, comparing the weight of each, or let's put it this way, a pound of battery and a pound of oil, what's the difference in how much oil they supply? And the answer is that um, um, batteries designed for electric aircraft and they are more demanding than batteries supplied for cars because a fire breaking out in a car battery is a problem, but it's not a huge problem. You stop your car and you get out of it. But a fire on an airplane battery is fatal. So obviously the technological demands of airplane batteries are going to be higher than for car batteries. So it's not hard to figure out that at the moment the very best amount of power that you can get from an airplane battery, and the figures are in metric figures just because they're easier ones to use for universal calculations. A kilogram, by the way, is 2.2 pounds, just over 2 pounds. Uh, and so 2 pounds, a kilogram of battery, supplies uh, about... 0.1, a tenth of a kilowatt hour of power. Now, you may not know exactly what a kilowatt hour of power is, but it is the amount of power used by uh, something drawing a kilowatt for one hour. Let's say you, you turned on an electric light bulb, a 100-watt light bulb. A 100-watt light bulb is a tenth of a 1,000 watts, which is a kilowatt. So a 100-watt light bulb burning for 10 hours would be one kilowatt hour, okay? Just to give you an idea. An electric motor that draws 100 watts, which would be a very small motor, uh, that running for 10 hours would use up one kilowatt hour. Well, a battery, a, a, pl a plain battery, can supply for every kilogram of its weight point about a tenth of a kilowatt hour, all right? Now, um, how's about jet fuel? Jet fuel, 2.2 pounds of jet fuel, or a kilogram of jet fuel, supplies about 12 kilowatt hours. What's the difference between 0.12 and 12? 100. So, uh, me, as, as a non-aeronautical engineer, and you, unless you are an aeronautical engineer, this is really simple and straightforward. What I've just told you is that using the latest and best technology, Jet fuel supplies a hundred times the energy of a battery. So batteries are not a whole lot better than coal. That's where it stands at the moment. But now it's actually worse than that, and I'll tell you why. Um, when you fill up an airplane with fuel, and by the way, they don't even ever fill up a plane with fuel. They put in enough fuel for it to reach its destination with a safety margin. Right, because they don't want to carry, if they land with a tank loaded with fuel, they've wasted a lot of fuel carrying that fuel up into the air. 
So uh, there's, there's a figure in airplane terminology called maximum takeoff weight. So um, there's a certain maximum takeoff weight that an airplane has, and it takes off and it's got a tank full of jet fuel. When they land that airplane, the jet fuel gets consumed during the trip, right? And so the airplane lands with a far lower weight, and the weight keeps diminishing across the, the, the journey of the flight. And so the amount of effectiveness, the amount that the airplane has to carry keeps dropping down. And so the average for a flight is even lower. How about a battery-driven airplane? Its weight doesn't change. As you draw power out of the battery, it doesn't weigh less. And so an airplane lands having carried the same weight of the battery all across. Therefore, when I said before that jet fuel is 100 times more effective than battery, that figure is actually closer to 150 times more effective than a battery. I'm telling you all this, my dear friends, only for one reason, and that is to tell you that it is really not hard, even for a non-technical person. It's not hard for any of us to say battery-powered commercial aircraft are a dream that we're not going to see. Now, if you tell me a nuclear-powered aircraft, I'll withhold, I'll withhold judgment. That's another discussion altogether. But the idea that we're going to have electric Tesla zooming around the skies or that the next time you get on a, uh, a, uh, a European Airbus or an American Boeing, you're going to have the silent takeoff because it's going to be electric motors driving it off a big battery in the tummy of the airplane. Please don't believe it. And therefore, the only reason I tell you all this is to... Um, is to point out to you that at the next social event you're at, and it's, you know, people of all different beliefs and backgrounds, you start off, just say something like, oh, I can't wait till we travel on electric aircraft so the emissions go down and we can help the planet and save the environment and stop climate change. You'll be amazed at how many people jump in on your side. You'll be amazed at how many, I do this all the time, by the way. You'll be amazed at how many people die, oh, yeah, Electric planes are almost here. The technology is almost there. This is all a progressive dream. It's not how the world really works. It ain't happening anytime in the near future. By the way, you'll say, well, battery technology has improved enormously in the last 20 years. You're right, it has. And uh, it may conceivably, we don't yet know how, but even if it continues at better than the present rate, it may get from 0.12 kilowatt hours per kilogram to maybe 0.3. Right? That's still not a 50th of what jet fuel supplies. The, the gap is so huge that there is no, sorry, that's just not happening. At the moment, we're barking up the wrong tree, uh, barking up the wrong tree entirely. It ain't going to happen. You don't have to worry. It's not going to happen. And so uh, the only reason I mention all this is because I wanted to highlight the uh, progressive commitment to their religion that they will put aside simple calculations that will show the facts in order to believe that we are making progress to a tomorrow that really cares about the future and where people like me 
will finally become conscious enough and virtuous enough to accept no housekeeping in the hotel in order to save the planet. Right. Um, on exactly the, the same basis in, in that I, I urge you very much to be true and faithful devotees of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. I urge you to be happy warriors. And one of the distinguishing characteristics of happy warriors is that you do not automatically believe people who say experts say. And you don't automatically believe people who say studies reveal. You think for yourself. What is more, you have faith in your own ability to think things through for yourself. And as a happy warrior myself, I read a piece in, the, in a British newspaper very recently, a, a really amazing piece, and just again, a beautiful example of where belief trumps facts and uh, foolish people who are not happy warriors, because happy warriors are never foolish people, happy warriors don't believe, they reject this stuff. Recent British newspaper, women, I'm reading the headline, women are happier without children or a spouse, says happiness expert. All right, please, happy warriors, when you hear the word expert, run for your life, okay? Um, please, do not believe that experts know or care more about your children than you do. Don't believe experts on anything. Consult and choose your resources carefully. Pick them, study them, evaluate them. Don't take anything on trust except your faith. And if you are a progressive, well, then this is your faith, and we understand that. Fine. And I'm happy you're listening to the show. But uh, behavioral scientist Paul Dolan says traditional markers of success no longer apply. And the article starts, we may have suspected it already, but now the science backs it up. Unmarried and childless women are the happiest subgroup in the population. And so on and so forth. So it runs, my friends, all, all the way through the article it goes. And um, it's, it's incredible. Uh, look, you don't have to be me who has the incredible privilege of speaking live to uh, close to close to 30, 35,000 people a year. I don't meet personally with every one of them, but I see them in the auditorium. I see them in the church that I'm speaking to. But I do talk to a whole lot of them afterwards because I nearly always sign books in the lobby or wherever it is. And, uh, and people have a few words with me. The notion that we're now at a point that most women do not want a spouse or children, it simply flies in the face of all my experience, in the face of my knowledge. It flies in the face of my knowledge of how the world really works. Um, and that is that, yes, the overwhelming majority of women do want to have children, and they do want to have children together with a loving, dedicated, lifelong partner. Yes, they do. But the fact that a prominent British newspaper um, cites this as, as a fact, everything's changed. This, by the way, is part of the fundamental belief of progressivism, uh, of secularism, and that is the world is constantly changing, evolving, moving towards a better future. Everything is getting better. Human beings are no longer primitive beings who believe in gods and devils. And No, now we are becoming sophisticated people subject only to reason and ration. Yeah, 
Right. And take a look and see what the rationalists did with the 20th century. But uh, really wanted you to be aware of this article. Uh, prominent newspaper, uh, lots and lots of comments. People are really into it. Very little. Again, I mean, I didn't expect conflicting comments because the people who read this newspaper <laughs> obviously are people who agree with its position. People, most people of us are like this, right? We don't like being tormented by having things we disagree with thrown at us all the time. We don't. So um, there it is, another one of these beautiful examples of, hey, it's just a belief. Everything is fine. You don't have to worry um, because, yeah, women are actually better off without husbands and children, and they know it. They know it. Uh, I am sorry about the uh, about that that noise. Um, just because of time constraints, you'll forgive me. But um, the the post production team not going to be able to fix that up this week. Just um, please make allowances for it. I I would rather keep up and make sure there's a podcast available for you every week, uh, even when at times it means that. Technically, it's not going to be quite as up to standard as it should be, and, uh, and I'm, I'm sorry about that. At any rate, um, there is a group called the Dillard family. Uh, I'm not going to go into much on that. Right? They're a traditional family. One of the, the lady is Jill Dillard, and she writes a blog and does stuff, and uh, they've got a following, and uh, they seem to be very nice people. Um, so she recently did a piece on, um, I think it was called, More Than Sex, How to Love Your Husband. And so uh, uh, she writes, at a recent meeting, a sweet friend of mine was in town. She shared some good advice with us younger wives. I took notes and thought I'd share some of her advice combined with some of my own thoughts on marriage. I know I personally love learning more about how to have a healthy marriage. So she says, five years ago this month, I married the man of my dreams, Derek, etc., etc. She says, some of you have watched our love story unfold on television. And um, she said, one thing I get so tired of people saying when we're getting to know each other, uh, everything's wonderful, we're newlyweds and so on, but then it's going to fade away. And she says, it uh, doesn't have to be that way. Uh, when my mom's friend, um, when, no, when my friend's mom shared her advice with us young wives, she started with a couple of Bible verses and would say essentially the same thing. Um, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. And, uh, and uh, do this, you will live, etc., etc. So uh, she goes, all right, what am I getting to? She says, here are some of the ways we can love our husbands. Okay. This is very uh, politically incorrect, right? It conflicts with progressive belief. That's just what politically incorrect means, conflicts with progressive belief. So she writes, uh, have sex often. You both need time together regularly many times a week, when you may not be able to actually this, etc. So just go and basically uh, find other ways to be fun and be intimate. Let your spouse know that you're always available. All right, God against fulfilling. All right. I don't want to read too much here because I know that many families listen to this show together with their children. And, uh, and I hope the children are mature enough and old enough to understand that the best gift that your parents can give you is the love that the two of them have for one another and the strong 
durable marriage that they are building around you so as you grow up in a strong, durable family. And part of that is the godly design for husbands and wives to constantly be concerned with one another's welfare and joy and pleasure and, and safety and happiness. That's, that's all me, not Jill Dillard. Um, and so she goes on and uh, she speaks about look for ways to encourage your husband to serve him and meet his needs. Try and get 15 to 20 minutes of uninterrupted talk time every day. And then she says, look nice for him. Okay, and again, she goes, she goes into the detail. She says, you know, um, all right, I, I'm not going to go. It, you, you know this all. I don't have to read it all. Go to bed fresh. It's easy to just want to shower in the morning to wake ourselves up, but showering in the evening and sometimes before he gets home, if you arrive home before him, even putting on fragrant lotion, etc., etc., all of this shows I care and you're important to me. Let's him know you're up for good things. Um, never allow your husband to think you're his mother. All of this stuff, it, it's stuff, it's stuff you've heard from Susan Lappin and me if you've been at any of our marriage seminars. Um, and don't be disrespectful towards your husband. But you can imagine uh, how this stuff sounds to feminists. Anyways, um, and there's more along the same lines. Don't let your children control the house, she says. Yeah, right. I, I, was, I was so bothered by being in a, a store the other day, and uh, a father's got a kid, looks like he's six years old, and there's, they're standing in front of the cookie, the, it's not cookies, it's pastries, delicious looking pastries. And uh, the father saying to the child is whining and grumbling, it's really a bratty little kid who needs to be, well, never mind. But um, the father's saying to the kid, which ones do you want? Just tell me which ones you want. Wow. Okay. Anyways, um, why do I tell you all this? Because as you could well imagine, um, Jill Dillard uh, provoked a firestorm, not on her website, but when this was quoted in other places, uh, she got a firestorm of hateful, bigoted, <laughs> intense comments. It, it, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, I'll give you, I mean, two of them are, whoa, I didn't realize we went back to the 1950s. And the person writing that um, says that she, she obviously means that the indictment is going back to the 1950s. Like that's the very worst thing you can possibly do. Do you understand that this is the progressive mindset? That progress is by definition good and virtuous. That's what they believe. Um, another woman wrote, this is so incredibly disturbing. So you understand that there is a true picture of how men and women can live together in marriage. And then there's a materialistic progressive view of how men and women can or cannot live together. You really can only go one of those avenues, you know. And uh, you kind of pretty much have to decide which one it is. And so... Uh, there it is, just another example. You've got to be able to recognize this stuff. You see it all the time. By the progressive, progress is always by definition good. Anything from the past is bad. Slavery in America serves as the purpose to denigrate and indict anything from yesterday. 
And so the Donna Reed show, which I've had reason to mention on, the, on our show here before many times, is an American television show from the 1950s, I think it was. And uh, it portrayed a marriage based on the true vision of marriage, the Judeo-Christian biblical model of marriage. Was Donna Reed and her husband religious? As far as I know in the show, there was no clear indication that that was the case, but it doesn't matter. Their parents or grandparents were, and the model that they were bequeathed was a model of a husband and a wife, of masculine and feminine, complementing one another, not competing with one another. Complementing, not competing. And again, my dear friends, you all, you happy warriors, you kind of got to decide what you want for you and for your children. And if you believe that progress is in and of itself a virtue, then none of what I'm saying is of the slightest value to you. Remember the question I love asking progressives. What would society look like for you to become a conservative? At what point do you stop trying to change society? And the honest progressive looks me in the eye and says, never. We'll never stop changing. We're always going to continue improving society. Doesn't always work out that way, though, does it? But uh, one thing that does work out, whether we like it or not, is that time marches along, and that means we have come to as far as we can go in today's Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. Listen, uh, go to the website because there is a resource on sale for you. Uh, it is called Prosperity Power, Connect for Success. And uh, this is the, uh, the podcast that is being prepared at the same time that I've been preparing for the holiday of Shavuot, the Jewish holiday of Shavuot, um, which is on uh, for the year 2019. And I know some of you um, are happily listening in, in subsequent years, and obviously the dates don't apply to you. But for those of you happening to listen, be in the year 2019, on uh, June the 9th and June the 10th are the holiday of Shavuot or Pentecost. Uh, our store will be shut on those days. However, before that or after that, you can take a look and read up Prosperity Power Connect for Success. The reason it's relevant to me at this time is that uh, my teaching on the holiday of Shavuot all has to do with connection. It has to do with why the biblical book of Ruth is read at this time, uh, which, by the way, I cover in Prosperity Power Connect for Success, two-hour teaching on exactly that, the relationship between connection and prosperity, how God built a world in which those of us who effectively connect with God's other children in a spirit of service and humility do the best economically in terms of the great benefits and blessings of financial abundance. And so all of that uh, covered in Prosperity Power Connect for Success is an audio program. Uh, you can download it. It's available at a special discount price. Um, it's, it's, it, frankly, it's unbelievable value. I mean, what you will take away, uh, you and those around you and those you care about in your orbit, uh, understanding the huge potential that is unleashed when you connect with another human being and uh, the uh, economic results of that connection 
all of that explained in great and practical detail in the uh, audio program called Prosperity Power, Connect for Success. Go to the website, which you by now know is rabbidaniellappin.com, or more easily and happily, you need a rabbi.com. Do it that way as well. But either way, whenever you get there, zoom over to the store and read up about Prosperity Power Connect for Success. I think you will see that this is something you need, and those in your circle, people you care about, you need to be able to help them get this information as well. Uh, it is among the most useful things that I teach. It so happens that it is also very applicable to uh, the next couple of days in the Hebrew calendar, celebrated by uh, Jews who care about the Bible, about the Torah, and about God uh, in the deepest way. So thanks, everybody. Really appreciate you being part of the show. Thank you for your letters. Jay in Nigeria, yours was heavily featured today because it had so many characteristics that I loved. Uh, appreciate it very much. I see all your letters, respond to as many of them as I can, as some of you have discovered. And... Uh, uh, appreciate, again, you promoting the show, whether it's telling people about it or sending people a, a URL or a link. Uh, very much appreciate all of that. The show can be heard on many, many different platforms um, across the Internet, so there's really uh, no trouble anybody should experience in being able to enjoy the show. Thank you for listening. I want to wish you a week of good health and prosperity in the week ahead good times as you celebrate life with your family, with your friends, with your faith, and with your finances. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless you. Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network.